Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of Chasing Poker Greatness, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is longtime poker professional Shane Schlager. Shane has racked up $1.4 million in tracked live NTT caches throughout his poker career, a career that has had its fair share of ups and downs, basically like pretty much every other poker player's life I know and he has written extensively about his past battles with addiction. And even though we don't cover that chapter of his life in our conversation, I just want to state for the record that it takes a mountain of courage to show that kind of vulnerability and put yourself out there like that publicly. And for that, Shane gets my utmost respect and has a loyal fan for life. And before you dive into Shane and I's conversation, I do want to add a minor disclaimer. There was a 5 to 10 second lag during our call that persisted no matter what we tried. So the times where we're seemingly speaking over or interrupting each other were not because we are really bad at talking, but instead because we were out of sync. As they say in France, c'est la vie. In today's episode of Chasing Poker Greatness, you're going to learn why Shane believes poker is best pursued as a hobby instead of a career, why MTTs have always resonated with Shane more than cash games, the devastating story about the time Shane became a PokerStars pro, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you Shane, Shaniac, Schlager. Shane, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Good. Thank you for having me, Brad. It's my pleasure. Hope everything is going very well for you. And typically, we, we start out the show by asking you about your poker journey, your story. Where do you come from? How old were you when you found the world of cards? Well, I grew up in uh, New York City. Um, but oddly enough, I started playing cards and I was 21 years old. So it must have been 1998 over at uh, in New Mexico, at Sandia Casino. At the time, it was just like a poker room in a tent and not in just because they hadn't built the casino yet. And I was playing like massively losing one to five stud, like $1 to $5 stud. Yeah. I was capable, was capable of losing a, a nice percent, you know, losing very consistently, like chasing every hand to seventh street. Absolutely. Um, I, I played uh one to five stud one time I was in Tunica and probably like 22. I got very drunk and sat down at one to five stud and a friend walked past and he said, what are, what's with the quarters? And I said, they're quarters. <laughs> we use these in this game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. That was the bring in. It was a, I don't even remember what the, the structure was. Yeah, like um, they didn't have quarter chips. And, we just had actual quarters. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, th- but then I wound up, uh, you know, where I really started playing a little more seriously uh, was back in New York. I just met someone at the tennis courts, actually, uh, who was also a poker player. Took me to uh, this club that was just opening uh, called PlayStation. Basically, like, it was like a so-called underground poker club, but it was on the second floor of, like, a very 
exposed building. It was very odd. Like a Jack Lillane gym or something was transformed into a poker club. And they would have uh, $40 rebuys like twice a week, as well as cash games, uh, like 1020 limit hold'em, 4-8 limit hold'em. There was like a five five pit, pit. Before you dove in, like, what was your um, experience with poker and competition? You said you met your friend playing. Your friend playing tennis led you to poker. Did you have any? I guess this was like the late nineties, right? So it's before moneymaker. It's before the boom. Well, so I guess okay. So I guess I I, I did jump there a little bit. I I would say uh, like nineteen ninety eight was when I started just like dabbling, becoming interested in gambling overall i think i wound up playing like blackjack and things like that for a few years and i and then i guess uh the poker new york thing was probably more like 2003 2002 so yeah before moneymaker or you know like the 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 entree into the new york poker scene was right around moneymaker like so i remember like watching that unfold I, i think you know i think i might have even tried to play a couple satellites either the year he won or the year after on, on poker stars. So was, we we're just getting into it. And even like, I remember the first uh, poker room I heard of was America's card room. Like that existed back then in, in 03 or 02. Really? I actually didn't know that uh, ACR has been around that long. It, 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 yeah. I definitely remember hearing about it back then, but I didn't have like um, a major competitive background. In fact, um, yeah, I was, you know, like tennis, I was just like a casual parks player and, in general, I was never like that really competitive guy. I was never someone who like really like loved to beat games and and like you know play chess really well. Yeah, what? Why did poker grab a hold of you the way that it did? I, you know, maybe for its uh, degenerate appeal a little bit, like not not pure degenerate, but just like yeah, you could gamble and have fun and and do something different. Like while the rest of the city is going home from work, you could go play a little $40 poker tournament. And then I, and then I got pretty good at those. Like I started winning a couple thousand bucks here and there in those, in those $40 rebuys. And, and then, then I met like, I met chess players, um, people like Ben Johnson and Greg Shahadi in the New York sort of scene. Like, and those guys were the first ones that I ever, uh, whoever made me aware that professional poker was a possibility. I was just kind of like messing around. I thought, you know, it's cool. I could win here and there, but I didn't, I really didn't like, but this was the time when the, the league of like young professional poker players was forming. And it was like, it was like a revelation to me when guys like Greg Shahadi would just like explain the very basics of being a professional or like the possibilities of like, you know, not having losing months and just. Could could you explain to me? Explain to me the the league of professional poker players was forming. That that gives such a clear image. Tell, uh, expand on what you mean by that. I, you know, certainly there was no exact league. I mean, <laughs> there was you know, like if you were around since then, you have witnessed uh, the creation of a huge universe of poker. And I guess that's what I mean. It's just like between then and let's say the first time I went to the Bahamas, I just remember it was just like every. Every step was like a revelation about how successful these kids were. What did and it I was look a little like? bit older. What, what, what did it look like? Like hanging out was just everybody's talking about poker and all the time. Uh, I mean, it was still a little fractured at the time. It wasn't like the, the community hadn't really collected. It was just more like 
always meeting new people who were experiencing success in the game, you know? And then like, I think uh, 2005 was my first PCA. And that was just like another sort of like indicator of, of how much prosperity was taking place in poker. Like, you know, meeting Gigabat, People, everyone's everyone's talking about their bankroll. Everyone had like a hundred k bankroll already somehow by, you know, by January two thousand five. That was like you should have a hundred k. And um, you mentioned PCA, so we're going from like forty MTTs to PCA. How'd you how'd you make it to PCA in those couple of years? Were you winning after meeting Shahadi and the the league of future professional poker players? I wasn't just like instant crusher or anything, but I, I, I mean, specifically I got to PCA because I think I, I took like second or third in a party poker, like $150 tournament. Uh, one of those like decent party poker tournaments that were going on. I forgot how much I won, but it was like enough. And it, it, the timing was enough. The, the timing and the amount was enough that I could like, I think I sold some pieces and went to PCA and so that was like the first, that was my first taste of like a spontaneous like poker trip, like diving into sort of bigger waters. And that was when I met a lot more people. And I, I remember, uh, and I just met my, then, you know, then future wife. I just met her and I won like 10,000 bucks in the pit, uh, like the first night in Bahamas and invited her down, you know, right in the, like the first month or two of our relationship. And, uh, you know, that's a good sort of taste of like, of, just the shot taking and the, the feeling of like, okay, we're going to gamble and win and have fun. That was sort of the beginning of it. And really I met, a, I met a lot of people on that trip that I'm still friends with. You, so, you it, don't yeah. meet, you don't meet a lot of, or I haven't met a, a ton of poker players that have been down in the pit winning 10 K. Um, especially like early on at that stage in their career. And oh, I, yeah. <laughs> the, I, so, I knew how to go on a run in blackjack. <laughs> I, like there was another period of time in there before i really got like between the one to five stud and the the, the the new york city club scene where i would just like get on a greyhound go to atlantic city and mostly dust off money like i but i just love i just love playing blackjack and shit i would get on i mean it's absurd to think about it now like to get on a greyhound and go to atlantic city just to just to gamble whatever money i had you know, but that I have to, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I have to give some credit for that to sparking my interest in gambling. And then, you know, poker comes around and it's like, oh, you actually have a chance to win if you take it seriously. Yeah. If you, uh, if so you... I don't know. I mean, you know, running it up in the pit was a, I don't know, it, you know, it was memorable, uh, mostly sure. for the gesture, for being able to just like be on, be on the road, gamble, run it up and, you know, just be like, hey, baby, come on down to the Bahamas. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I very, guess, you know, it's easy to romanticize, right? Like, and have fond memories. And that's the thing. Like, if you do gamble in the pit, sometimes you win. Like, you, you don't lose every single time. Regarding poker specifically, um, at this point, you went to PCA, you hit a party poker tournament, you were, you sold pieces of yourself, which means you were part of a community. You had, you were making friends and networking. Well, I think, I think I sold like, to one person who wound up backing me else. So it was like, I can't remember if I was already, I don't think I was backed yet. Like, I don't think I needed a back. I don't think I had gone broke and needed a backing deal yet. So it was just like, I won enough money that I could sell a chunk to one person and, and go. And, 
Yeah. What did your growth look like? The learning, like your strategic discussions, how were you progressing as a poker player? Was it something you were excited about? You know, that's an interesting question. Like, cause I don't, I don't know if the academic aspect of it ever, ever like was the thing that, you know, captured my fascination, which, which it seems is the thing that the modern poker players are the current day poker players are really, you know, most drawn to, I to me, it was always still, um, just about living a free form life, you know? So I, I enjoyed learning about it. So I would be better when I think about like the early things I was learning, they were ultra basic. It was like, I was just making like enormous mistakes and sit and goes and just a little bit of help from really these chess guys helped, you know, elevate my game a lot. And then I just think I found like more of a natural affinity for MTTs and I did pretty good at MTTs, but I was never like that hardcore student. I, I really never was, and I still am not. And I mean that—that's its own topic of how it may, might hold me back in various ways. Well, student is to me sort of there. There are different ways of thinking about poker and learning and having discussions and growing and improving. And I think that like just having connections, especially back in those days, with guys that are thinking about that sort of thing, is was enough to be able to win. I mean, just having any information when information is very, very scarce is good overall. Yeah, it's true. I mean, right. Maybe I'm underselling it too. Cause I, 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 I remember more just like dreaming about cards. At night. You know, I did love it. Like I, 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 I loved playing cards and then I wrote, you know, sir, there was a lot to learn. You could learn a lot quickly, a lot of basic things quickly. And that could take you pretty far as, yeah. uh, as it I, went. I also, one of my my things is that I uh, I don't love when people are like, yeah, if I would have played back today, like I would have just instantly made a bajillion dollars and nobody would have stopped me and I would have crushed everybody because like even back then, like it, it wasn't easy. You couldn't just learn three things and then be like, oh, well, now I'm just going to be a professional poker player and nobody can touch me. Like you still had to put in the work. You still had to, you were like a frontiersman trying to figure out like, exploits and why people do what they do and what correct bet sizing should be. And like everybody just opened three X preflop because well, Phil Hellmuth said to one time and like, you know, we're trying to piece together strategy nowadays. It's just very, very complex and we have very complex tools, but I think that people that were successful back in the day yeah, would be successful today. And the people that are unsuccessful today would have been unsuccessful back in the day as well. I think that's part of it. And I mean, now that I think about it, the definite like distinction I, I remember was like, there were these like sort of old, old guard pros, like guys who would play down at the Genoa club and different places like in New York. And I, I do remember being aware that those, they were outmoding themselves. Like they were not, like they were more like resentful of this new like class of young expert players. And they didn't use that opportunity to try to learn. It was more like, it was just, I, I just remember this like, class of players who were just like defiantly like stuck in their ways and Mm -hmm. i I remember thinking like they're not you know like this 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 class of player will not really survive like or that did i remember feeling that like this like you know grizzled old pro like you know oh everyone's a fucking fish to me like that wasn't i i remember thinking like these guys are delusional they're like sort of resentful of like young players who are really thinking about the game and they're just straight wrong about their approach. Like, so I, you know, 
and of course, this was a long time before solvers and math. But like, I swear there are still people who were playing poker at the time who will like argue with me that math is not important. Like literally to this day, there's people who are like, oh yeah, Shane, you're telling, you know, the same old guard of players who really haven't been able to make money in the game for a long time. They'll be like, really, Shane, you're telling me like this is all about math? No, it's, you know, there's really still people who think that it's like, you just got to look at your man in the eye and read his soul. Yeah, it's which like, is, you know, of well, course, rooted in math, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. It's like, uh, you know, but but I guess the, the main thing I learned was, like, to be open-minded. Like, you know, the, the, the poker player trait of, you know, you cannot afford to be defiant. If you, if you, if someone, like, points something out that you did wrong, you can't afford to be like, no, I did it right. I like my play. You know, if you like your play, you better, better, like, stand the test of, of criticism and inspection. And so I, I, you know, I I guess if I'm now tracing it back, that's, that was one of the the skills that I think I did institute pretty well. It wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like hitting the books a lot, but I was paying attention to the game and I wasn't closed-minded. I wasn't like, I wasn't stuck to one, one way of thinking about it. And I guess, you know, I was able to absorb a lot of information and learn a lot. Yeah. I think arrogance is, one of the words you're looking for there, like just pure arrogance <laughs> of like my way or the highway, buddy. Um, it's the same like uh, shills at commerce that start games early in the morning and like you raise their blind and they just spend like 30 seconds glaring at you. Like you, you raise three hands in a row and they're just like evil eyeing you across the table. Like those kind of guys, um, they struggle that like they they think that their way is best they're not open to any learning they're not open to any growth and then they go to sleep one day they wake up the next and all of a sudden they're losing at poker and can't understand why right yeah i can think of a lot of that a lot of you know there's a lot of berating of people at the table back in the early 2000s like i just i remember a lot of irrational old pros like being frustrated by things that other people did at the table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> the old man on his lawn, you know, waving waving his fist to, you know, this is a neighborhood. Um, yeah. That kind of approach. So you went to PCA. You, you met your future wife at PCA. Um, no, no, no. I met her. I met her in Brooklyn, but I flew her down to PCA. Oh, you flew her down to PCA. Right. Yeah, because of, like I, I met her in Brooklyn. I was like, all right, honey, I'm going to play a poker tournament. And then I like, the first night I won a bunch of money playing blackjack. So that, I mean, it was like, that was good for, for a, a nascent love affair just to be like, come on. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I could imagine that that would, that would be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, but you know, we, I, I, to her credit too, we both, we both seized the opportunity of that early um, poker boom. Um, and to her extent, you know, she was a bartender. She was tending, you know, a uh, bartender when we met, and she she took the opportunity to start a career in production and did really well for herself, um, starting at a kind of low, lowish level and doing really well. She won an Emmy and different things. So I, I look back on I look back on that that time as as pretty positive in terms of like creating opportunity. Yeah, I guess sometimes I guess sometimes I'm I'm often down on myself about missed opportunities or regrets that I have in the game. But now that you know, as things are always coming to perspective, um, yeah, we it, it, like we we did our 
we did do some good things as far as taking advantage of that opportunity. Are y'all still married? Uh, not really anymore. Okay, <laughs> not not really anymore. It's on the way up. Uh, gotcha. Not really. Um, so it was a good run. We had a good run, but by the time this is broadcast, no. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, but I, I think you know what you said there is is a greatness bomb, <laughs> and it's something that I've realized as well is that as time passes and you gain perspective it's easy to be down on yourself in the moment or in a specific era in your life. However, as time passes and you can kind of look back, you, you do see the positives and you see how it affected your future and how, you know, how it led to some good developments later on in your life. Sure. <clears throat> and I mean, and again, that is, that is couched against, things that you know were distinct failures over the years but there's just different ways to frame the perspective and you know since you since you brought me back to this memory i'm, I'm, I'm just sort of formulating it as i go mm-hmm. um but yeah you know and and it, it gives me a good feeling to think about just like actually even more so like uh, all the people i met back then that i'm still friends with and all the things that collectively the poker world has accomplished like i'm 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 more proud, I guess, or more pleased, like to be a part of this world than I am necessarily to play the game. The game to me is the game, but I'm I'm impressed by what a lot of the individuals have accomplished, and I'm I think poker players acquit themselves pretty nicely, actually, just like on a human level. Like I think they're generous and smart, and you know, we we sort of give ourselves a bad rap because of all the degenerate madness that we also put each other through, but you know, there's, there's been a lot that's been accomplished in those 15 years. So it's, Uh, you know, I guess there's a feeling of satisfaction uh, to be part of that community. Yeah. I mean, it's something I think about a lot, especially networking and meeting folks through this podcast is just a, if you're down and out and a member of the poker community, I mean, they're very generous. They're very gracious. They're very helpful. They're very free with their time and their energy for with absolutely nothing to gain. Um, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of that, you know. And and also, there. I really don't think there is an any industry where money gets thrown around as casually. And I think that's to our credit too. It's like you know, money is, is the most important thing in poker, accumulating money. But but the paradox is that we do that within the structure of not caring about money at all. Like I really don't think even in show business where there's huge budgets and things like going on and a lot of like money that, that is up for grabs. I still don't think people throw around money like the way poker players do. It's like, okay, well here's several thousand dollars to go play a poker tournament. And Good luck. Deal, or not even <laughs> just, there's a, yeah so yeah living living in that on those margins i think is yeah going back going going back to pca and after you experienced pca tell me about you know the mid-2000s you're with your wife you're playing cards life is presumably pretty good what what happens next (laughs) somewhere between 2004 and today um what happens next uh, you know, I mean, it's certainly not all just like, it was not all sunshine and roses, but moved out to LA. Um, you know, if I had to 
like a lot of things happen. So it's a broad question. Um, the, what's the next thing that happened? Um, you moved to LA. Um, Listen, you know, grinding, just grinding a lot. And uh, I guess, you know, uh, p- actually playing commerce tournaments was another like step of revelation. It was like a little intimidating being there. But I think my second time at commerce in 2006, I snapped off. It's still one of my the bigger scores of my career, low to mid 200K thing. I was, they had a $300 rebuy. I mean, straight. $300 rebuy, like not re-entry really great tournament. Massive. It was like massive every year. I love those commerce and, tournaments. The rebuys. Yeah, you, you know, got like 10 big, you got like 10 big blinds to start. And so like you, you just get it in and there's tons of rebuys. And then like you gained a little bit of depth as the tournament progressed, which I thought was a good. Yeah. Start. I mean, I don't, rem- I don't remember the nuances of the structure, but I certainly remember what a relief it was to win that money. I think, by, you know, by the, by the time, uh, by the time that came around, I'd probably, you know, had a backing deal and I was, I'd probably experienced more of the struggle of, of playing MTTs full time, you know, some of the variants and probably even had makeup at the time of that score and things like that. And, you know, I, but I would tracing it back. That was a big, uh, big piece of my development. Um, and a lot of fun, you know, and then it was, yeah, I guess then the the years of, of sort of traveling around the world and chase and chasing scores, um, chasing poker goodness, um, <laughs> not greatness, you know, came just, around. just goodness. <laughs> uh, that might have been, you know that might be the problem, like of capped ambition. Like I was just you know, and and that's a legitimate thing. Like I did. I unfortunately I should have been more ambitious. Like if I had been more ambitious, I could have succeeded more. I think there was just part of my mentality that was lazy that I, I just like, I just wanted to like win these satellites, go on these trips around the world, go after big scores. And I wasn't like disciplined enough to like, just grind. Like I would have friends who said, you know, I'm grinding. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm setting myself up for long-term freedom and stability. And I'd be like, well, I'm going to Australia. <laughs> I'm going to try to to win a million bucks in Australia. Like we'll see. And you know, the, the approach of, of playing like two, four, no limit hold'em at home is definitely better for your long run success than, you know, flying halfway across the world to play like a 10 K MTT. I would um, say that, that so that's, that's pretty ambitious though, go, going to Australia to try to win a million bucks. That <laughs> pretty I, I, ambitious. I guess move. It is, yeah. You know, but it was more just like, let's get, you know, magic carpet ride. Let's, let's just go for it. Flying by uh, the yeah, seat of your pants. Still the, yeah, there's still I still wish I was even more focused and ambitious. Uh, and you know, there was also a lot of like a lot of learning about myself. I was still pretty young, you know, not, a little older than most of the poker world um, at the time. You know, it was like when 21 year old kids were coming in. I was 28, 29, but I had to learn a lot about balancing poker with um, a relationship and balancing my own emotions against. Um, downswings and things like that and, and not and not letting that bleed out into the relationship so things like that were you know characterized those next few years and how, how yeah, were just yeah. you know you, you talked about winning 10k in the pit and that was really good for a na- nascent relationship 
as time progressed and like we, you see some of the downside of MTTs. I mean, I, I assume that, you know, your wife wasn't used to the gambling world and nobody was really, or understanding of like variants and all of this stuff. So I imagine that like that, that was a hard thing for both, both of you to deal with as the downswings happen inevitably. For sure. I mean, yeah. And that, yeah. Uh, you know, she learned about it. Um, and right. It was like, I guess, I guess as, as much freedom as it allowed, it also offered some frustration and there, you know, especially as, her income was stable. Her income became stable and mine was, you know, based on, on, on MTTs and that definitely put some strain on you know, and it's and it's actually still just like a mind fuck to me. It's like you, you can work really hard and you're not working. You're not working at it, this. Isn't work. It's something else. I don't know what to call it, but it's like you don't get you don't necessarily make money for your hours, and that yeah. can definitely you know <laughs> when it's a prolonged downswing, that could put a strain on on things. Well, it's work. No matter. How, I actually don't really like the word work. Like I, I stopped using it as it related to me playing poker. I would just right. say that like I'm just going to play cards and kind of treat it because I have an aversion to work just as a human being. Like hearing somebody say, well, all right, I, I got to go to work. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, fuck that. I don't want to go to work. Like I'm going to play cards, you know, even even if it's effectively the same thing, just the right. the framing of it was different. And it doesn't even like it doesn't quite fit, right? Like it's like it doesn't it doesn't feel right to say I'm like when you're going to commerce, you're not going to work. You're not going to the office. You're going to fucking excuse my language. You're going to commerce casino. You know, you are. It's just something about it. It's not. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like work is the correct description. It's it's the grind. It's whatever you want to call it, but it's not. I don't know. It's not work. So it's, and and I think that's that can be that can be. That element is part of what's tricky in a relationship and in just building your life for success. Why is it why is it tricky? Tell me about why why it's tricky. Um, I think I I'm sidetracked, but um it, it's just that thing where, you know, again, we we were both learning the ins and outs of the game, right? It takes, let's say, several years to really experience the range of things you might as a poker player. So I just it it's tricky when you're going on it, you know, those first downswings and there's a lot of insecurity and there's a lot of uncertainty and things go from being like, Oh, you know, we're balling out 10 K little blackjack sessions come on down to it's like, now it's some reality and you have to deal with like maybe an MTT you have to deal with month long downswings and all kinds of doubt. And then it's like, I think, I think it affected my psychology to, to a point, you know, I, I just remember t- uh, like early, some of those early days in Santa Monica, early times where it just like, it would just be like long days getting deeper and deeper into makeup. And I just like would become bitter and it would, it would, it would be unhealthy in, in a way just for the overall like sanity of the relationship. And like, and on top of that, you're not making money. So, you know, and, what are the thoughts that and, go go and through your, your head during during like a big downturn? Everything like, like that? Uh, I guess some version of like fraud syndrome or, or you know wonder you know just like complete existential uh, examination. Like, is this 
is this what I should be doing? Um, it's like that. If there's a listener right now who plays poker and is struggling in their relationship, what wisdom or feedback would you like to give them as it relates to resolving those kinds of issues? Like what worked for you? I mean, for me, it was a process of learning to not take my partner for granted, I would have to say. Um, in other words, there's this tendency to be to like be super self-absorbed about your own poke results. It's like, so, you know, you just played a 10 hour session and you just added another 5k to your makeup and, and it's like, you know, to hell with the dishes, you know, but it's like, you have to, you have to, you have to be disciplined about your own emotional turmoil and then like rise above it to be a good partner. I think that's what it is. And, I, you know, I think I was immature in a lot of ways and just gave into my own, like, eh, like, I know, like, I'm not doing the dishes. You do the dishes. Fuck off. Kind of. And that, that, that did not, that, you know, that was something I had to learn to like not take for granted or, or, or at least also not be so self-absorbed about my own results. It's like, you know, it was very frustrating to, to, but then you compound it by like sort of just becoming more miserable and thinking that this is the most, you know, this is the biggest drama in life. It's like your little downswing and it's like not, and that is something you, you, you hopefully get better at as you see the long-term, as you see the ins and outs and the ups and downs of, of the game. And it's also just like emotional maturity. Like I learned how important it was to, or, you know, how important it was to me to have a solid partner. And that forced me to sort of like, just go above my own like emotional comfort zone and just, you know, try to be a more objectively present sort of person, especially in a relationship. Yeah. And, it reminds me of a cautionary tale that went down over the course of many years at commerce. And there's a player one who won a ton of money in the early two thousands and things stopped going so well in the mid 2010s. And every time I saw one who lived at the commerce, he was angry, just annoyed, always in a bad mood, always quick to lash out, not super fun to be in the game, and that was just how he was for a number of years. And I, I don't want to over dramatize things, but you know, one got sick at commerce. He developed cancer and he eventually passed away. And you know, when, when he had cancer, it was, it was not something that was like a switch that was like, wow, I'm just happy to be alive. It was like, now I'm even more miserable and even more upset about how everything in life is awful and going against me. And it's, it's easy to get stuck in that paradigm. And so for a listener that, that is stuck in that negative negativity loop, negativity paradigm, you know, try to, try to confront that, try to take steps to be a little better and get out of it because it's just a thing that can totally take over and ruin your entire life existence. That, that person you're talking about, was he the one that everyone thought would come in with like uh, AK-47 and shoot up the place? There was, Pro- I think probably. That's... I mean, it, it does. It would not surprise me. You know, he was like flipping for 50K five years before that all of a sudden he's just angry all the time at everybody. And um, yeah, it, it was really sad for me. It really, it, it hurt me a lot, it, especially when he started getting sick and then was still so unhappy about 
being alive and, and being, being there. And it was like, man, you don't have to be here. Go do something else. Like. Right. I, I mean, I think what you're getting at there is like major to as far as like living a healthy life. And that's why, look, honestly, I think poker is best played as a hobby, you know, preferably a plus EV hobby, but you know, it's, it's actually fine to be a whale as well. Like, and, like I, I just feel like that it's more conducive to a sane and balanced life to treat poker as a hobby. And it, the challenge really comes from playing full-time poker and like, you know, going down to commerce is very challenging mentally. Like I was never able to keep a cash game grind at commerce for longer than like really a couple few weeks, maybe a couple months at a time. And it, I just found it wearing on my mentality. Um, it's funny because yeah, I, I like, I think it's all about framing or perspective. Like it, it never wore on me actually. And everybody would talk about like all the slime balls and how everybody's so scummy. And like, I met some of the, my best friends in the world playing in those cash games in commerce. And I think that like, I don't know how, how we feel on the inside kind of shades our perspective in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, and then, like I'm not objectively saying, you know, commerce is a bad place to be. I'm just for whatever, you know, and I, maybe it's cause I came from such an, uh, a hard online background and I really enjoyed the freedom of sweatpants or whatever. Um, <laughs> Like it was just like I just remembered different times I would go down to commerce and like as soon as I got there I was like checking the map how bad traffic was, you know like very very bad mentality to play poker, um, but th- for some reason that would be it I would just like and I would even just like cramp up like I I never, never had that, that like warm relaxed uh, that you and other p- people I know who played at commerce or just cash game grinders had where they it, there was a sense of family or community within that you know, grimy structure. But for me, I, I never just like got there, like felt comfortable and felt at ease. I would always, you know, I enjoyed playing tournaments because there's like a clear like start and end point. Like I know it's like, I just have to get to 10 PM tonight with as many chips as I can. And then I'm going home. Um, but that's sort of like open-ended, like I need to be here. I need to be here in this, you know, low, like bottom section or any section. It doesn't matter any section of commerce, just like the idea that like, this is where I have to be for eight, 10 hours at a time in order to make a living. That would, so, that would somehow get in my head. And I, and I didn't enjoy, I never enjoyed playing live cash games in LA. Really? I have enjoyed playing. I, yeah, I have enjoyed, I, like last year I, I enjoyed some home game action, but as far as playing at the casinos, I even ventured back to Hollywood park at, at one point, like early last year. And I just always found myself miserable. Couldn't wait to get out of that. Yeah. And the players, all, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's just a good sign that you probably shouldn't be there, you know? If you're miserable when you go in the door, it's probably like, man, this this ain't my thing. Like, I know at Commerce, the, the one thing that I didn't have to deal with was the traffic because I would fly in and stay at the Crown Plaza for like three weeks straight. So, you know, it was a short elevator Good. ride down to the poker room and then an elevator ride back up to my room when I was done. So I could certainly understand how the traffic grind wears on people. Or just like, you know, suddenly you're now not by the beach. You're now in Commerce, California, with no sunlight coming in. That's like, why, why am I even here in California? But uh, it reminds me, though, that, that that can work on micro levels or like, 
in any setting. So it might not be like this broad existential thing of like, oh, I can't wait to get home. Like I remember I was playing um, a single table satellite at the Borgata and Gene Todd looked at me, just like looked at my attitude, could tell I was frustrated by something. And just like, like, bro, you got to relax, bro. Or you're not going to, you're just not going to be able to win today. Mm-hmm. Like, so the, it, it, it works on, on great. Uh, it is part of like that maturity process of the mental game of poker. I think when, yeah, you absolutely have to like eliminate all that like little pouty like upsetness that you might have on any given day. And Gene at, on that day just like totally identified. Like you're playing a 1K satellite and you're so like cramped up and frustrated. Like, bro, there's no chance you're gonna win, bro. You know, doing my best, Gene Todd. <laughs> Shane, what what do you want? You, you you want poker tables at the beach? You do you want them to just spread it right on the sand and just play poker? In no, the key, the, the, the key is you got to put a bro before and after every sentence, and that that that's how Gene would talk, at the, especially at the time. Like, bro, what do you want? The poker table at the beach, bro? Like, that you could put any 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 words in that sandwich as long as you put a bro on both sides. That's Gene Todd, the vintage nice. legend. I don't even know who Gene Todd is. Actually, that's that's a Borgata. I've, yeah. I've never been to Borgata. Uh, Gene Todd, bro, or Gene Todd. I mean, he's you know you might want to plug his name into Hendon Bob or something. He's done some stuff. Uh, he's been around forever. He was like an f- absolute fixture on the poker tour Shane, uh, in Shane, those early years. I so my entire career has been cash, and it's it's almost uh, embarrassing sometimes when. I don't know anybody hardly in the MTT world, like just anonymous cash game grind, not checking Hinden mob or results or anything like that. Uh, even when I started this podcast, it was like, I hadn't watched the WSOP on ESPN in like 10 years. I, I don't know who wins from like year to year or what the MTT tournament scene even looks like. Yeah. Uh, and yet that, that is what influences a lot of the public character of poker. Oh, for I sure. Mean, yeah. You know, in fact, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it, it, it's shameful how little I knew about MTT players and their results. I obviously knew who the crushers were, but as a cash game player, right. you know, I just sit down at the computer, I play in my little anonymous games, I log off, and then I go about my life. <laughs> and that was really it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a sensible way to approach it. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, like, yeah, you and Bart Hansen. Uh, although Bart Hansen now has done very well in poker tournaments. Has he? I haven't seen his results. <laughs> Shock- shockingly, I haven't looked him he up, had a looked him up in Hinden Mob. No, uh, well, so he had a big score, I think, in the Monster Stack, like either the last World Series that they spread or two World Series ago. And he put he posted like a funny graph, like now I'm a tournament bro making whatever it was per hour. And the, the graph was like down, 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 spike. You know, the funny thing is, there doesn't have to be that delineation between cash and, and, and tournaments. It's like, and the best approach, is, the best approach is to be like Bart Hansen and just really realize your hourly on year in, year out basis, and then put yourself in a position to snap off a tournament score. That's obviously much more sensible than, you know, it's also more a more well rounded approach to developing your skill set. It's funny you mentioned feeling in control and knowing when you're going to stop in MTTs because that's the reason why I've always been drawn to cash games and not MTTs is that I I know that if I want to quit, I can just quit. Like if I'm done with my session, if I'm not feeling it, I can just walk away. Right. 
tournaments, you can't just walk away. You've got to sit there and keep making decisions. And yet, and yet somehow that works for me better psycho- psychologically than the indefinite nature of a, a cash game session. Like cash game session, you, you have to really make your own, like you have to structure your, your day more sensibly and evaluate the EV around you like, like just more accurately. Tournaments is like you have to play for two hours and then you get a smoke break. And in those two hours, you know, you know, MTT strategy. It's like, I know I will get to the end of the day if I can just keep accumulating chips. And it's something, I, I don't know what it is, but something about that definite stop time and like knowing that your work has, it's the opposite of what most people don't like about tournaments. That, that thing, like I have to sit here all day. It's like, well, I'm, I'm prepared to sit here all day. I mean, <laughs> as long as it's not like all day and then another 36 hours because there's a fish at the table like that's actually better for me yeah like you, whole, you could just whole, leave you know you could leave the fish if, if you so chose there's nothing there's no magnet yeah. in the seat that's just pulling you down well that's the other funny thing isn't it i mean like cash game players they wind cash game players who don't want to play tournaments and be stuck there for 10 hours they wind up playing for 36 hours if there's a good spot like, not me like, not me <laughs> I, i'm always uh what i learned over time was that if there's a good spot in the game and it keeps me there for 36 hours, like the next day that I play, there's another good spot. And I just realized that like, there's always going to be a good spot. Now a great one. That's a different, that's a horse of a different color. That one, maybe you can't do much about, but like basically the games are, the games are always going to be pretty good. So whatever, like I, I could stand up and leave. I mean, so you, you're, so when you're playing a game and you know, it's gone a long time and you might be tired, but there's someone spewing tons of chips or just that keeps buying in that you kind of know that they're going to go straight to zero. Are you able, you, you can't really leave a cash game in that scenario. Can you? No, but that doesn't happen every session. Like that doesn't happen no. every single day. And so I, I will stay in that instance, but in the instance, that, like it's just a pretty good game. Then tomorrow there will be another pretty good game. So I don't feel like I have to, keep playing that you know that's that makes sense that's a good level of professionalism um but certainly i've seen the i mean look so, some of the some of the micro like the micro ecologies in that top section in commerce absolutely revolve around one fish or a few fishes i mean this is my observation that when there's the fit like like that, I can think of like big mix games there where there's basically one or two people supporting the entire pro poker player ecosystem. And I don't, the people I knew who played those games, I don't think they could ever felt they could leave while that fish was at the table. That's their entire earn. Yeah, that's a different, I, I think that's another, that's a horse of a different color in like the mixed game world where I'm playing 10, 20, and 20, 40 no limit hold'em. And like there's just a l- much larger population and pool of players that come and play in those games yeah that makes sense yeah i i remember i played i played uh 10 20 no limit at, at commerce with kevin hart before he was really kevin hart i mean he was he was on the way up mm-hmm. i just <laughs> but he was a wild player like he would he could he could actually build a really big stack and then like dust it off really quickly and uh, but I, yeah I, I remember some sometimes from that top section of commerce. Um, but I never fully got into the groove of just like, you know, feeling comfortable being there for however many hours. 
and you know that's to my detriment it's just as they say you know different strokes for different folks and we all got to approach things in the way that makes sense for us for sure i just wish i yeah i just i just wish i had made more sense to myself i guess i mean i would say the next major uh like turning point in the poker career was uh like 2013 or sorry 2011 i got the poker stars deal um I wound up getting a deal as a uh, poker stars team online. They did like a kind of like open call. And uh, I wound up that the second year that they did they, 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 that they did team online. I wound up getting accepted as part of team online. And um, that was an interesting juncture in my poker career. Cause I guess I felt I was able to use some of my soft skills in the community to, to get that. Like, in other words, I, I wasn't really hired just cause I was like a MTT crusher. It was more cause like, I could communicate with an audience. So that was a satisfying sort of like turning point in the poker career. And then I got signed and like Black Friday happened three months later. I was like, I got signed right before 2011. And uh, the deal didn't even get quite announced until like, I think January or February. And then April was like, oh, Black Friday, you're screwed. <laughs> like, what are you going to do now? And uh Eventually, I did. I, I did relocate for a couple of years. Where'd you go? I was. Uh, uh, so at first, I relocated. I went to Canada with a friend of mine. It was like, it was actually like a really good month of poker. I I won a Deuce to Seven Triple Draw bracelet, but it was kind of a it was a W Coop month. It was September of 2011. Um, but it was as, as far as like a living experiment. It was a little bit. It was a little bit depressing. I don't know why. Where I, was your wife? The existential group. Uh, she was in LA. That might have been during one of our, um, during one of our like rocky. Like we had we had, we had different stretches where we separated or this and that over the years. I don't remember exactly where our relationship was at that time. We weren't married yet. We only got married in 2013. Uh, so this actually that that period is characterized by us really trying to get back in the same place and figure it out. Like I was I was. Canada and then Mexico for poker. She would travel a lot for work. Um, and, you know, that, that was part of the stress that characterized that whole thing. Like I, I did go to Mexico and rented a place so I could continue working for poker stars, or continue playing for poker stars, but I would commute every day or every week. Rather, I would commute home. Basically I would drive from Rosarito two or three hours home to try to keep that relationship up. And that was interesting and, you know, might've stretched me a little bit thin too, in some ways. So I don't know. There's always, there's always like, you're, you're making me realize that there was always like some tension in my attempts to streamline my poker career. There's always like something that I'm like, you know, running to or running from it, trying to just like fine tune. So, you know, I had, I, like that was an okay couple of years, like in retrospect, but at the time it was very like, it was also like emotionally trying, like driving to Mexico and being like, God damn, like, why don't I have a way of making a living in California? Like that was certainly my best opportunity to make a living was to drive to Mexico every day. And it would just like mess with my head a little bit. And then I would enjoy, I would enjoy being there and just grinding. I would, you know, there was that compartmentalization again, where, you know, you, you've got your task. It's like, you've got, you're going to register for eight hours and then see how you do. And I guess that's how I wound up adjusting to it, you know, and then Monday you're going to go home. Monday you get to drive home and 
do all the things you like to do in California. It's pretty brutal that, you know, the tension because of the variance in MTTs over time in your relationship. And then you get signed to stars just in a moment where, okay, you're going to have some like income flowing in. Oh yeah. And then boom, the rug gets pulled out right from under you straight away. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had some, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely really good to have that income, uh, you know, and the validation, I guess. And I also had like a nice little score right at the beginning of that deal. Like right when they announced it, I, I think I won a hundred, like one of the bigger hundred rebuys that they ever spread. I think it might've been 90 K. It's hard to imagine a hundred, hundred dollar rebuy play, paying 90 K to first on a Sunday, but yeah, massive. Um, yeah. So it's, 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 it's funny. It's, I guess it's never really been like smooth sailing of any kind, uh, but it's also always been fun. It's always been a learning process and, some successes and some failures and here to tell the story, Brad. So I'm not, you know, I, there's no like maudlin aspect to it. So even, even the, the failures that I can identify, I'm not, I, one thing I've certainly learned is to just like have a different mentality about it. Like to not have that like sad sack, like, Oh, look, you know, look at my, look at my mistakes. Uh, how am I ever going to like recover from it? It's like, no, you got to just like learn and, and just rebuild no matter, no matter what, no matter how far ahead you should be, you just have to build from where you are. Yeah. As, as one of my favorite new quotes from George Orwell says, uh, a man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying since any life when viewed from the inside is simply a series of defeats. And I think that that's, the case for all human beings is that like we do have these ups and downs and successes and failures. And that's just kind of the nature of being a human being and going through the human experience. And after Rosarita, after black Friday, were you a professional poker player the entire way through? Did you ever try to pursue something else to where maybe you could be in LA and make money? Um, I've, I've been pursuing different things, uh, that are almost even more challenging than, uh, than winning money at poker, uh, some creative projects and things like that. But no, the truth is I haven't really figured out a great money-making scheme. You know, I started recently a new podcast called Cannabis Stories. Let me plug that. Uh, and I hope that will generate revenue, uh, one day, but you know, my EV is not, I, I still don't have like EV anywhere else. Even to this day, my EV is better playing online poker on a Sunday than whatever else I'm doing. But I have been, uh, you know, my path out hopefully is some kind of creative product that I can put my time and knowledge into and get some rewards from. Uh, I, but, you know, I've also, I've, I've had little day jobs um, in throughout this, like, poker like more the more recent phase of my poker career i've i've tried everything you know i've i've tried going back to work and i've you know i've put a fair amount of work into a couple of projects that could develop into something um but i'm still in a very uncertain uh space in my life so you know the adventure continues i'm still trying to get it all right yeah the poker players conundrum of 
I want to do something else, but there's nothing else I'm qualified to do. But anything that I want to do, I need to be getting paid a lot more than the market value of what they pay. So I just play poker. Right. So, you know, you, you think like, shit, I, I ought to be smart enough to earn more than 20 bucks an hour. But the, the reality is your your intelligence gets sort of like, you know, marginalized when it comes to like your actual value on the open market. Unless you are able to start a hedge fund or, you know, go into trading. There are certain, there's, there's, a, there's very few jobs that you can theoretically take the skills from poker and develop it into another like, you know, grossly money-making situation but yeah it's very challenging that can be very demoralizing i i I think you know i don't don't even think it's always about money either i think the thing i run into with poker is that you're there's no service aspect there's no aspect of like helping out your fellow man you know and that can be sort of draining when you you even if you're you know if you're a busboy you are you're offering service to your fellow man, you're taking care of someone else at their dinner. Um, a poker player, I don't know. There's that doesn't really exist. You're just you. You are playing a game for a living, and that's what people say they love. They go, "Oh, I get to play a game for a living." It's like that's I'm living my dream. It's like ah, I don't know. That's that might be the part that I struggle with. It's like you're just playing a game for a living. It's there's it's a zero sum game. And there's no or negative sum game really, and there's no. You know, there's, there's, it, it, it's hard to find the human service value in that. And, it, and that, so, so even beyond the money and the dollars and cents. It's a thing that I've struggled with as well. And I've flip-flopped back and forth on this specific topic. And I think that there are many professional poker players who deal with this kind of existential threat of what am I doing? Who am I serving? what impact am I making to the human race by just sitting here and playing poker and trying to take people's money all day long? And I realized uh, a couple of years back that, you know, I was walking through the casino and a bunch of people were playing slot machines and blackjack and messing around in the pit. And I just started really reflecting and meditating on the idea of like, why are these people here? What, what is there to gain for them? Why do they do this? And the conclusion that I eventually came to was that the service that the casino ultimately provides is that moment in time when you place your bet and you're waiting for the dealer to reveal the result. That's what you pay for. You pay for pressing the slot machine and the little wheel spinning, that moment of excitement, exhilaration, um, the thought that yeah, things can go zone. well. Yeah. And, and I think that poker is kind of the same way. Like that's the value of poker players to the people that play poker against them is that that moment when before the river is dealt, where everything kind of hinges on whether or not they realize their equity. Um, that's ultimately why people are there that's, and playing cards. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. I, there's a few things I thought of that could put it in perspective. Actually, did you ever play a commerce with a guy named David Hayden? I don't think a- so. Y D E N. Not to my knowledge. Old pro, like I don't older pro. I played with him five, ten, one. I think just once, but he was very memorable to me. And I and I, I think I brought up this topic. Like we're not doing anything here. Like there's no service. He's like, well, there's you're creating action. Like creating action is like next to godliness. You know that was kind of his thing. It was. 
just a f- philosophical way of thinking about it. Like, and I think it's similar to what you're saying. I mean, the casino is creating action, creating like a really like momentous event right there. Like you can just park your car, go in and, and have like a high stakes result one way or the other. So there's something, you know, it, I, I don't want to, again, be like maudlin about it. And then another thing someone told me, there was an artist that I knew who was doing a residency at a hotel in Vegas while I was at the World Series. And I said to him, like, you know, the problem with my profession with this game is that there's no art. There's no art to it. You're not creating anything and there's no art. And he says, well, and he, he framed it in a way that I still think about that I like that he's like, Actually, I look at it like you are creating a painting. I'm like, this is art. Like, you've got your chips and you've got your canvas and you've got the way you present yourself. So, and, and that kind of, I don't know, that kind of added, it, it's interesting to have an artist look at a poker player and say, oh, well, maybe you don't realize what you're doing is art. And then the other thing was Stacey Keach saying that talent is repetition. On a, on a podcast the other day, I heard Stacey Keach say, like, talent is the ability to withstand repetition. And like that sort of applies to a poker player. Like I used to think like poker players don't really have talent. We have skill, but maybe I had it backwards. It's like, we, we do have talent, you know, the talent to withstand repetition is something. Um, and the skill to play cards. Well, I guess is, you know, I, yeah. So, but it's honestly, I think it's more like the soft skills that you take away from poker that are more valuable. Like the ability to think rationally in high stress situations that's like a good outcome of poker winning and losing i guess is is not that inherently interesting um but you know as far as like when i look back at at, at what's interesting about a poker career it's like no what's like it actually like turned us into the strange functioning creature where we're able to like you know have some compassion and some empathy that is required in poker to like understand where your opponent's at and and then the ability to like really maintain your rational composure in the face of any kind of nonsense that you have to deal with. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of a funny little story that will probably get me into trouble. Uh, my wife and I were watching The Dark Knight, <laughs> and these hypotheticals did just come up. I, I've realized that I, I'm kind of stupid with hy- hypotheticals because there's the right answer, and then there's like my initial thought of like, hmm, I'm not quite sure. But so in the dark night, to set the scene up, there's a hospital. The Joker has wired it with explosives, and he's saying that he's going to blow it up at a specific time or for a specific reason. And oh, he's going to blow it up if somebody doesn't kill Harvey Dent uh, in a certain period of time. And then Harvey Dent is like in a car. 
they're driving away and the police officer who's in charge of looking after Harvey Dent has his wife's in the hospital, right? So he's uh-huh. like kind of eyeballing him and like looking for his gun. Somebody sends Commissioner Gordon a message and like, yo, this dude's wife is like in that hospital. Like, and so the guy acts all nervous and the commissioner grabs him and they like take the gun away from him or whatever. And it poses the hypothetical question, of course, like, Hey, if, if I was in the hospital, what would you do in that situation? And I'm, my initial instinct is like in this type of situation to kind of rationally think about it and be like, well, they have Batman, right? Like, you know, let, let's look at the variables. Like, what kind of time frame are we looking here? Maybe, do I have like an hour to kind of like make my decision? Like what if, like if I just off Harvey Dent, like I'm going to prison forever and that's, that's probably not a good end result. So like maybe, maybe I just kind of wait around and play it by ear and like see if Batman saves the day. And if he saves the day, um, if I, you know, instead of just saying like, Oh, of course I would just shoot him in the face. Um, which is, you know, what my wife said. And then I've right. like got to so explain you're, myself, you're- but like, that's sort of the poker mind at work. Yeah, and, you know, and like that serves you in some real-life situations even better than it does, like, watching a Batman movie. You know, it's like, I, I, I've i just learned how to control my emotions in so many spots that wind up benefiting me. I mean, we're just, there's plenty of spots where you just want to tell someone to F off. And if you can, if you can avoid doing that, you're actually better off in the situation. And I, I, I guess I could, you know, Poker has kind of taught me how to just eat a lot of shit and like, and maintain your composure and like not, and not take it personally and not take it and not let it like ruin your, your inner peace. You know, it's just like, and then just like to be disciplined, to have the discipline to not tell someone to fuck off can really be useful. You know, it can really keep you out of a lot of trouble. Uh, Whereas it's like a lot of the world is, is guided by emotions. You know, they, if a lot of people feel the need to display their emotions or like prove themselves to be correct in a situation when you're really just better off letting it be. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking very broadly. Very sure. Absurd. Sure. It's uh, feeling the pressure and being able to analyze the variables rationally, despite your emotions kind of going haywire, like just taking a pause to think like, what is the result of my action here? Is there a better play? what should I do? And just a lot of times just taking that beat to rationally analyze the variables provides a much better path moving forward than just snap making a decision and then just living with whatever the hell comes out of your mouth or living with the consequences. Yeah. And I I think that becomes hardwired actually, because it's like, you know, a a poker decision is like, you have got all this stuff going through your, like, let's say, you know, an important decision where, there's a big bet, whatever the case may be. And you've got to sit there and think about a lot of things and you got to look cool. You got to look calm and you have to basically be calm and collected while like all these like intense variables are going through your head. So once you've spent thousands of hours doing that in, in a poker context, it's almost like you, you can't not do it out there in the streets. It's like, you're suddenly like, you're suddenly now used to your default is to not spaz. Your default is to like, Whatever's coming at you, you're going to like filter it through some calm, rational, you know, portal that you have. And that I, I think is one of the big life skills that you can get out of the game. And that, that, that makes the most sense to me right now as I'm talking. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it 
brings about situations where you enter a hypothetical and you say, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would shoot him in the face straight away. Like <laughs> I have nothing to lose, but, right. but somehow you find yourself in that situation. And then you're like, God damn it. Why didn't I just say I'll shoot him in the face? Like, what, what does it matter, Brad? What is wrong with you? I mean, yeah. Or even shit, the Godfather. It's like, uh, you know, Sonny Corleone could not, could not handle bad beat. His, you know, <laughs> Michael could like, like Michael, Michael could play the game. Right. And, you know, take care of Salazzo or whatever, whoever what was the sergeant. And, uh, you know, but Sonny was, Sonny was always hot off the handle. Like he was always tilting and he wound up, you know, we all know what happens to Sonny. Not good. Not good. Um, <laughs> Sh- Shane, can, let's move on to the lightning round really fast. Um, okay. I, I, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. So first round, our first question in the lightning round, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? My go-to recommendation for anyone who is interested in music, life, creativity, production especially, is the George Clinton memoir, which is called, wait for it, Brothers Be, Brothers be Like, Brothers Be Yo, Like George, Ain't That Funking Kind of Hard on You. So... <laughs> It's a it's a great memoir by a very accomplished band leader and songwriter, and, but it really traces his whole career back to like hustling to the Brill Building in the fifties and sixties in New York to how he developed Parliament Funkadelic. He's got a great memory for a lot of details, but it's also like it's a story about perseverance and just like to keep working and not and not feel sorry for yourself and not feel and just like keep working and keep producing, keep moving things forward. And you know, there's also a lot of good like American history in there different it's just a good perspective on american history but mostly it's a, it's about just like the determination to keep working and, and keep developing new things so the george clinton memoir it's just very good for that definitely when it was published it helped it helped me get out of a certain depression i was in where awesome, i was just man. like yeah it's like you know get off your ass and jam let's roll um if you could wave a magic wand change one thing about poker what would it be it would be that everyone would stop talking about solvers and academic stuff related to poker. Like it, it might be a natural evolution where the game is, but the fact that all we talk, all we hear about whenever there's a live, whenever there's a, a, a poker broadcast, it's about, it's only about like, you know, whether the seven of clubs is better to call with than the seven of hearts. It's like, that's, there has to be a better, like, if I could major, wave a magic wand, it would be like poker commentators are not allowed to talk about game theory or, or, or solvers, and they strictly have to talk about the fun uh, aspects of the game or the things that, like, any human being can relate to. And, like, that would be it. Why, why do solvers get you? Why do they get your goat, the theory, the solver talk? I don't, I don't mind the fact that solvers exist and that they, you know, I don't, you know, I accept that and that that's probably the best way to study the game. Why do, why is that all we talk about? Though? Like, why is that all that it's like, it's, it's a, I don't know what it is. It's something that, that frustrates me because it's almost, I don't know what it is. It's just, we've, we've lost track of the fact, like how we make money at poker. We don't make money at poker by, like, 
chiseling out these fine, fine edges against like other super smart players. Like you make money in poker by playing against players who are significantly worse than you. The goal of the poker industry should be to get people, you know, into the game who aren't trying to master PO solving. So the fact that that's all we've sort of like directed our focus on, like, yeah, you know, to be a good poker player, you're going to run Sims all day. It's like, that's who is that appealing to? It's only appealing to people who want to like be very competitive and very good. So that's, that's what frustrates me. It's like, there used to be a more, a more all encompassing thing where a lot of people would feel comfortable coming to the table, not just people who are trying to figure out exactly how to use blockers. You know? Well, for the record, you know, in a lot of ways, solvers are very overrated and players who are very inexperienced can get misled in a lot of ways by just fully buying into 100% solver dogma. They're kind of a, it's a double-edged sword. Sure. Um, yeah. But I mean, there, like, there are a lot of uh, human elements to poker that make it interesting. Um, Absolutely. Of for course. For us to completely ignore all those. Uh, for us to completely ignore all those in the public facing, like, you know, discussion on poker and to really focus a little bit too much on game theory. I just, you know, it, it, it has just created a tone that I don't love. I'm not like angry, but yeah, you know, this I, is where I, I we're think, at. It's like, I think there, there may be a little bit of a negative negativity bias in play. I, I don't know. Like Mark Herm, for instance, shits on solvers all day long and actively talks trash about solvers and doesn't use solvers. And yet he's one of the most successful tournament poker players of all time. And that's sort of yeah. how, how he approaches it. And and so like the human element of poker is the ultimate wild card. And if you're a master of humans and you understand human emotion, like I've always believed that that takes you much farther in the poker world. If you can understand what people think, how they react, how they feel, that's going to just create a big edge. And that's a part of the game that like I originally fell in love with. Yeah. And look, not for nothing. Mark Herm is, is both fun to watch and fun to play with. I've only played with him once, but you know, that's an example of someone who's crushing. Like you can see what he's, you can see he's doing things at the table that are kind of crushing, but he's not, He's not this like sort of like miserable a- analyst, you know. It's not just like eh. I don't know. <laughs> he, that's a great example of someone who can, you know, bring a high level of play to the game, but also like create the atmosphere of fun and gambling that we want to represent in poker, you know. I, you know, so like I would think actually if, like recreational players would be happy to play with Mark Herm because he's a good storyteller. He's fun to play with. And he's not sitting there talking about like the hand after it went down, whether like your call was good because of your 10 of hearts. Is that a thing that happens? I haven't played things that (laughs) I haven't played live poker in like seven years. Is this like go down at the high stakes live poker? Solvers solvers. I don't, I just feel like um, I'm almost, almost, exactly thinking of a hand that uh jason coon played at like a triton high roller where like he makes some sick call with king high or something or with a king i don't remember i don't remember the hand but i remember at the end of it nick said yeah i like it with uh the seven for his you know for his second card rather than the 10 or you know it was like it was about whether like it's correct to call a bluff with like king 10 versus king seven there they're both king highs but like 
the way Nick was analyzing it, and it, it was interesting. It's interesting if you're trying to learn how to play poker at a very, very distinct high level. But it's like complicated. It's complicated. Like he's like Nick in that in that announcement of like why Jason Kuhn's call was good. He's basically like explaining a solver output. But there's a bunch of other things Nick could possibly explain there that might make the game just a little looser. That's all I was getting at. And again, I'm not mad. I see it as the natural, it's the natural like elevation of all the study. Like we've had a bunch of geniuses studying the game for 15 years. We've got software that gives us this information. It's not super surprising that people would be fixated on, fixated on it. But this was a magic wand question. You know, <laughs> yeah. magic wand would be stop, em- st- stop emphasizing. Somehow if we could stop emphasizing the analytical aspect, that would be better for the game. That's all. All right. Cool. And we'll we'll move on to the the billboard question. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say? Tomorrow is promised to no one. Be present. What's a project that you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? So I mean I, I'm definitely I am definitely excited about this new project that I'm putting together can, cannabis stories feels like and you know an opportunity to present just things I enjoy and both like the culture I enjoy related to cannabis that's sort of the conceit but it's really just like free form chain life and then it's also like an interesting time actually in the legalization of of ganja in this country it is a good time to be exploring the market so I'm excited about the placement of this project. It's going to be a slow build and you know, it, it's daunting. It's, it's, it's really like starting over. It's, it, it reminds me in some ways of like starting a poker career. Like my friend said, they're like, cause I'm almost, I'm struggling with some of the technical details, let's say, or the recording process. And my friend said, yeah, it's like, imagine playing poker while you're like learning the rules, which is true. You know, I've had some podcast experience and things like that. And then there's a couple other, uh, things in uh video and audio that i am trying to produce you know that and and there's a book i'm writing i'm writing a book that i will that i think will be entertaining cool Um, about your life what's it about i've got yeah no it's actually specifically about two months out of my life or two months in the life that took place in big sur in 2017, uh, this very like special area of California that was made even more special because it was locked off. It's like a major tourist uh, thoroughfare. Like, so you drive down, you might know, but others might not. Um, basically, millions of cars every week drive down PCH and, and check out this beautiful coastal view off the highway. But at one point in 2017, it was blocked off uh, from the south because of a landslide, from the north because of a bridge collapsed. So everyone was kind of like stuck in like this Big Sur Island. Like not you could. It was very difficult to get out. Like and I wound I, up living there. Yeah, I, I was there. I, I was on vacation with my wife. We went to Big Sur and we went. We walked up like the like the massive elevation game through that trail in the woods to bypass the the road outage. Um, and we yes. ate it. Ate it Nepenthe. Yeah. It's an amazing big big search yes. is an amazing place. Absolutely. So and that's cool that you got to experience that. That that trail specifically, you know, like represents everything. 
Yeah, so you got to experience that. I don't know. You know so I was living there for that two month period. Um, and I got to really witness a lot of interesting life dynamics. And it was really like, a one, I think, a one of a kind time in history, you know. And so to be able to see that from the inside and also just like the, com- like the community that existed there, which is a very like rugged, not necessarily trusting community. They're not like, they're not like, oh, yeah, come on, like, let's show you our big sir world. Um, everyone was a little less guarded and a little more open to each other during that time. And I witnessed just a lot of cool things. Even like there was like some entrepreneurial stuff that I saw people accomplish and just a lot of just like ability to get things done on, on your own is what I witnessed there. But I, I think there's a book in there. Uh, I've begun it. I'm in the early stages. So just a bunch of like, you know, moonshot um, creative projects is where I'm at right now. Cool, man. Well, stick with it. I, I know that, like with the podcast, you just got to stick with it and keep moving forward day in and day out and keep producing them. And eventually it builds, but it can be, it can feel much slower than we would like it to be. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm prepared for that. And uh, I, I, I offer you much congratulations on your consistency here. A lot of stubbornness and stubbornness <laughs> just I, I love doing it i think i, I love having these yeah, conversations and, and that that's what ultimately helps me keep going even when it feels hard producing episode after episode after episode and like the growth is very very slow just loving meeting these people and sharing these stories and having these conversations i think ultimately is why it was relatively easy for me to keep going just because i i feel amazing after this conversation with you and after the conversations that I have with every single one of my guests. That's well, thank you very much for that compliment. And I enjoyed it too. And yeah, that, that you got the whole game there. It's like, it's, you have to enjoy the process. It has to be a joyful process and the slow build is fine too. Um, But yeah, so I really enjoyed this conversation, man. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Final, final question here. For the Chasing Poker Greatness listener, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? For the most part, at my real name, Shane Schlager, S-C-H-L-E-G-E-R. You know, Twitter, Twitter is the place where I communicate most thoroughly with people. You can find me anywhere else as well. But So uh, at Shane Schlager on Twitter, uh, CannabisStoriesWithAZ.com is our website. And we'll soon be the YouTube channel URL too, hopefully. But... So it's Cannabis Stories is the, is the current project. Shane Schlager on Twitter. Very easy to get in touch with if anyone wants to. Awesome, man. Shane, it's been great having you. I'm grateful for your time and your energy. Have a good rest of your day, my friend. Hey, thanks a lot, Brad. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.